Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Okay, so we have to learn to expect the unexpected. And I just realized as we began the podcast that I have a 130-pound dog under my desk, um, under my feet, sleeping. Now, as long as he's sleeping, it's not going to be an issue. But if there's any loud noises or if anybody else in the house calls him, uh, this this would be Eli, who's the the puppy, puppy with in, in quotation marks, the, the result will not only be rather dramatic, it will be spectacular because all the wires are down there as well. So if you hear this major explosion, it's because the dog got up. I usually don't, <laughs> you know, this is, this is, this is life and the unexpected has to happen. So we're starting off today. Everything is horrible, right? Hospitalizations for COVID uh, hit 100,000 for the first time since uh, January. As we're beginning this, there's uh, reports of a suicide bombing at the airport in Kabul, which is the sum of all fears. Uh, we're not necessarily going to get into that because it's it's breaking even as we, we we talk about it. The Taliban is announcing that they are banning all what live, public music. Um, this is going to be great. Uh, also, Taliban spokesman says that there's no evidence that oh, Osama bin Laden was responsible for 9-11, so... That's working out uh, well. So, to hash through all of this, um, our good friend Karen Tumulty joins us again, deputy uh, editorial page editor and columnist for the Washington Post, and the author of the best-selling book, "The Triumph of Nancy Reagan." Karen, thanks for coming back. It's so great to be here. I didn't depress you too much with the beginning there, did I? Just, I mean, you know, you you had me trying to think of like what's been going right, and I, I was, I must say, you had me kind of stumped. Well, okay, here's something that happened yesterday. Before we get into all of this, and I, I, I put this in my newsletter this this morning, you, you know, we've sort of gotten used to this, the the narrative that nothing matters, there are no consequences for bad behavior. I thought that the judge's ruling in Michigan, the federal judge who just dropped this massive hammer on the Trump election lawyers was, that, that felt kind of refreshing, that she basically said, look, you people should never have been in court. Uh, you, you lied, it was a disgrace. So, you know, it's one thing to lie to the public. That's just politics. But it turns out that if you lie to a federal judge, bad things will happen to you. Who knew, right? And and wasn't that, as all of this was unspooling over, you know, since the election, people have kept, kept saying, well, you know, these guys go out and make these ridiculous public comments. But where they could really get in trouble is if they make some of these bizarre assertions that they know not to be true in a courtroom because there are professional sanctions that that could happen. Otherwise, they're just part of a kind of disinformation operation. And so it's good to it's good to see consequences. Yeah, this is uh, the Judge Parker who, who wrote in a 110 page order that it's one thing to take on the charge of vindicating rights associated with an allegedly fraudulent election. It's another thing to deceive a federal court and the American people into believing that rights were infringed. This is what has happened here. So she's referred all of these lawyers, this includes Lynn Wood, Sidney Powell, a bunch of others, uh, for possible disbarment. You know that Rudy Giuliani's already had his law license suspended in New York and in D.C. And of course, this group is also facing the multi-billion dollar lawsuits from Dominion Voting System, which... A lawsuit like that has, has a way of focusing the mind, doesn't it? I mean, so so there are there are real consequences possible out there. I don't want to engage in irrational exuberance, but it is possible that some of these folks uh, 
might experience some um, real inconvenience in their lives because of their because of their support for the insurrection and the big lie about the election. So that's something positive, right? And yet, I doubt that this will have any you know, impact on, you know, the the huge proportion of the Republican Party that actually believes what some of the things they're saying. No, see, and that's, that's true. And it, and it's because they're, they're, they're caught in this weird death spiral. I, I see, do you remember Reince Priebus? So Reince Priebus is a Wisconsin guy. You know, we go, we go way back, was the chairman of the Wisconsin Republican Party. And of course he went on to Great things. Uh, He's back in the news uh, talking about how Wisconsin might do what Arizona is doing, that they will, that the Republicans are prepared to spend more than $600,000 on some bogus audit. So this is another just example how, you know, it it doesn't matter how bogus the charges are, the crazy just keeps spreading and spreading. So let me just, I want to, we're going to get to Afghanistan in a moment, but um, there's a couple of interesting splits in the Republican Party. Um, you know, one is obviously over how to handle the Afghan refugees. But the other one is also on this whole question of how to handle the vaccines and the masks. So there, there's not a unified position on all of this. And it's interesting to me, and I wanted to get your take on this, because some people keep asking me about this. You know, as as the Delta variant is exploding, as hospital beds are filling up, as, you know, more and more people are on ventilators, you have people like Ron DeSantis in Florida and Greg Abbott in Texas doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on their anti-mask, anti, you know, anti-vaccine passport positions. So give me your sense about their and, and, and even in the face of polls showing that these are not popular uh, opinions. So what is the political dynamic here that Ron DeSantis is going into overdrive even as his state is now, I think, arguably the worst in the entire country in terms of the spread of the pandemic. It's it's just one of the most remarkable things I think we've ever is. seen is. in politics. That you know, a medical question has been turned into a social issue signifier by some of these supposed leaders of their states. It is, and it, and it's it's the it's the reckless demagoguery in the in the face of the facts. And obviously they think that this is a ticket for them to advance in the Republican Party. And maybe they're not wrong about that. I mean, right right now, um, no one is hurt within the Republican Party by taking these positions. But there was an interesting break, and I wanted to play something for you. Uh, Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota, who I think is uh, generally quite deplorable in, in her approach to this, and South Dakota is exploding in its... Uh, in its uh, rate of infection as well. But she has broken with Ron DeSantis on one issue. She is saying that she will not support state bans on private companies that want to require vaccination. So, you know, she's basically saying that, well, not basically, what she's saying is she doesn't have the power, you know, as, as, as governor to tell private businesses what to do. She says, I don't want to trample on the rights of our people. I'm not going to start right now. So while you have uh, Abbott and DeSantis and the governor of Montana, who are in a very non-conservative, non-traditional Republican way, ordering private companies not to have these vaccine requirements, she's going the opposite direction. And she's being hammered for this by elements of the right-wing media, including Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire, 
There's a blogger named Matt Walsh who went on the air yesterday and attacked Christy Nome for taking this position. Again, this is a this is a traditional Republican conservative position that the government shouldn't tell private companies what to do, right? I mean, it's like I'm old enough to remember when this was this was pretty normal. So Christy Nome takes the position that almost every conservative Republican would have taken for 50 years on something like, you know, private property rights. I, I people may not be familiar with Matt Walsh, but um there's an interesting exchange here. Matt Walsh attacks Governor Christy Nome for this position, but this is the way he does it. Let's play this. No use for Christy Nome. Christy Nome is a very attractive woman. So she's got that going for her. That, as far as I can tell, that's the only reason why she was ever looked at as some sort of 2024 potential front runner. All, the hype and everything that she's gotten from conservative media is entirely based on the fact that she's an extremely attractive woman, which she is. But, you know, you put 50 pounds on her and another 20 years. <laughs> I don't think she gets any of the hype. Ooh. Okay, so Governor Nome then fires back. She says, instead of engaging in a debate about the proper role of government and how it is not conservative to tell people how to do business, Matt Walsh stooped to horrible misogyny. Eyes up here, Matt. <laughs> so, so, Karen, just give me your take on this. I, you don't have to be a defender of Christy Nome to think this was just a bizarre exchange. Yeah, this is like so many kinds of awful. Yes, it's misogynistic, <laughs> but it's also what does that say about conservative media that you know that they they would be promoting someone just be of, of either sex just because of their looks? Well, maybe maybe he's got something there. I don't know, I, but I, he's I, uh, he's you know it it is it's horribly misogynistic, and it also suggests that people shouldn't take conservative media very seriously either. But getting back to the other issue, which is the question of whether Republican governors are going to take on private companies, I think is a, a really interesting you know, thing to look at because yeah. they, they're happy to push around their school districts and and their own government employees. But but we also saw earlier this year, um, you know, when a number of private companies like American Airlines and Dell Computers were raising objections to some of these uh, laws in states like Georgia and Texas that would make it harder to vote. Um, it, it was a different kind of political dynamic in there. And I, I just think it's really interesting to see corporations, uh, you know, and again, for their own reasons, for looking at their own bottom lines, looking at their own workforces, uh, stepping into some of these incredibly, you know, emotionally charged political issues. No, and, and of course, we have one after another who is now, are now imposing some sort of a vaccine mandate. So give me your sense of, of where we're at here Will the FDA approval of the Pfizer vaccine and the fact that that uh, companies and universities around the country are now mandating them, does that will that change uh, the trajectory of this? I mean, will it, will it make a big difference? You think? Um, in some respects, I, I have not never bought the assertion that there are a whole bunch of people out in the country who won't get vaccinated because they're waiting for FDA approval. I mean, because mm -hmm. the idea that 
these people are saying, I don't trust the government, but I demand FDA approval of this drug is, is, you know, it's just the contradiction is, is amazing. So I, I don't think there are a lot of those people, but I do think that this, you know, allows in institutions to move forward with their own mandates, whether it is the military, which has already announced that, you know, as soon as FDA approval came through, that active duty would have to get vaccinated. I think they ought to extend that to reservists and guard as well. And, and probably, you know, it really does give a lot of, say, corporations and, and other large employers uh, the, the real kind of imprimatur that they need to move forward with their own mandates. In all, I, I thought it was very interesting what Delta Airlines did yesterday. They said that they were going to impose a $200 uh, a month surcharge on health insurance for employees that don't get the that don't get the the vaccine. And I have to say, that's all that also strikes me as a very free market response because it basically says, look, there's a cost in the marketplace uh, for refusal to take the vaccine. If if you're hospitalized, it's going to cost something like forty thousand dollars or more cost a lot more than that. And of course, in, in, in human life. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see what the reaction to that is. I, I certainly didn't have any problem with that. In fact, I've been I've been wondering whether or not you would start to see uh, people, uh, insurance companies pricing in the cost of vaccine refusal as they have priced in, for example, certain things like man, smoking. I don't have a problem with that. That's exactly true. It is sort of, uh, you know, it, it is very much in line with, uh, you know, encouraging people to protect their own health because that really does help hold down the cost of health care for everyone. I, so I think that the mandates won't necessarily, and I agree with you, I, I don't think that the FDA approval is going to change hearts and minds. I mean, if, if, if you're really locked into the stupid, you know, you're not going to necessarily change that, your, your, your position. I mean, clearly, you haven't trusted the science until now. But I do think that even if it doesn't change minds, it, it will, the mandates will change behavior. And there's something sort of simple about it. You want to go to school, you have to get the vaccine. You want to keep your job, you have to get the vaccine. If you want to stay in the army, you have to get the vaccine. Um, I, I think that that clarifies it. It's also worth reminding people, and all of this, you've heard all of this rhetoric about, you know, you are, you know, these are the Nazis and you're imposing this on everybody. You know, people need to take a deep breath. We have been having immunizations and inoculations for a long time for centuries in this country. The, you know, it goes back, George Washington had mandatory immunizations for smallpox back in 1777. There's a long history of this. Plus, and I'm sorry to keep repeating this, anyone who's ever gone to school or sent a child to school knows there's a whole list of immunizations you have to have. So it's weird that there's almost this, 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 this perverse carve out uh, for COVID that, yes, you can't go to school unless you are immunized for this, 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 but you can't require that for the coronavirus. Why not? This is this is something that's been routine in this country up until five minutes ago. That's true. The only thing that is somewhat different here is, you know, how new the vaccine is. Um, mm -hmm. Most of these required vaccines have, have been around for a, a long time. Although, you know, the flu vaccine ch changes every, every year. year. And uh, for instance, the military, you, you are required to get a flu shot. Yeah, exactly. And and that's not considered to be a, a violation of 
of human of of human rights. I was going to play for you some uh, some sound bites that are I don't know whether you see these on on social media from various school board meetings, people coming in shouting and making threats, but that's too depressing today. But it is interesting how, and I I, I do think it's relevant that that we're 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 seeing this this uptick of real anger over I would say modest public health uh, re- requirements that. That that actually could morph into something worse than that. I mean, just just, just, well, just yeah. I mean, we saw yeah, that in Michigan. You see, you know? When you see Donald Trump getting booed by his own supporters for at the, at, that, at that last rally because he suggested people people get their COVID vaccines, that that tells you how you know deeply implanted these sentiments are. I think it also tells you that. Trump is not going to be urging the vaccine on anyone anytime soon again. So let's talk about uh, what's going on in Afghanistan. And again, um, when we began this podcast, we just got the reports of uh, the, the the suicide bombing outside the airport, which, of course, they had been warning about it. It was really one of the great fears um, and perhaps will accelerate everything that's been happening. There were reports that some of our allies were saying that they were stopping um you know, evacuation efforts now, and there was kind of a back and forth. So let's not speculate about what's going on with the bombing because we just don't know and we're not a breaking news uh, outlet here. We are a, a podcast. But let's talk about where we're at right now. And, and let me just tee this up with uh, with Senator Ben Sass, Republican Senator, uh, Senator Ben Sass, who was on Morning Joe this morning talking about how long we should stay there. Um, clearly, the administration has decided to uh, not stay. Well, I'm, I'm not sure anything's clear at this point, to be honest about it. But uh, they, they, we do have that uh, August 31st uh, deadline. I don't know whether what's happening this morning is going to be changing that. But this is Ben Sass talking with uh, Joe Scarborough this morning. Um, so, um, what, what, how long do you think America should stay there? How long should they continue, uh, evacuating Americans, uh, past the deadline? Until every American's out. There is no excuse for leaving Americans behind. The, the president, the president seems to be content with a plan that is going to end up in some sort of a hostage situation. It's completely indefensible. Um, we need to finish the job. Obviously, I'm against the withdrawal decision, but that's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about the fact that this evacuation has been so ham-handedly planned, and the administration continues to just go out and try to take these weird victory laps every 36 hours like things are working well. Things are not working well. We should obviously celebrate every single American and every American ally who fought alongside us against a common enemy. Everyone who, of those who gets out is a small victory, and we should celebrate those hum- as humans. Um, but we need to restore the sense that when America gives its word to people, we intend to keep our word. And so we need to stay there as long as is necessary to get out all the Americans. And the president made a really bad decision uh, to negotiate and continue negotiating with the Taliban. It was a never, never a good idea when the last administration did it either. Uh, but right now they're acting like we can rely on the mercy of the Taliban. We know what the Taliban is going to do to people who are left behind. So Karen Tumulty, what is your take on this? There's a lot going on there. Yeah, I think this this whole question of the deadline and the deadline is formally August 31st, but in in reality, that means the, the massive airlift has probably only got another two, three days because then you have to get U.S. military out. Um, so I, 
I think this has been, you know, the it's they they have elevated the numbers of people who who they are evacuating, but you're still not going to. It's hard to imagine you're going to achieve um, getting out all the Americans and and just you know it's been set as a lower priority, but it should also be a priority getting out all of the Afghans who are in danger of their lives because they assisted the U.S. over the past 20 years as, as translators, as, as fixers, as, you know, staffers at the embassy. And beyond that, I, you know, we have an obligation to a lot of people who are going to be in great jeopardy because they bought into the idea that, our country had had established, which is that they could become a civil society. So that is going to include people like women's rights advocates and journalists and, you know, even members of the judiciary. Uh, I mean, the, the obligations that, that this country has go beyond just getting out our own citizens. And then we turn to what happens after these mm-hmm. Afghans are out. Um, you know, I think the United States owes them a big obligation to help them get resettled, as it did with, uh, you know, the South Vietnamese who who made it over to this country. So there are just so many issues here. But starting with this August 31st deadline, which is going to be Hard to meet when it comes to the question of getting American citizens out, but it seems like it's going to be impossible to meet when it, it, you know, when we're talking about getting out Afghans to whom we owe a real moral obligation. So it's it's August 26th. They have the deadline of August 31st. As you point out, that probably means we're talking you know, on Thursday morning that after Friday night, this is going to start to wind down, if not be shut down. I mean, the reality is, is that within a very few uh, days, the door is going to be closed. We don't get these people out now. I don't see, I don't see how we're really going to get them out unless we're prepared to go back in covertly or special ops, which I don't know that anybody has an appetite for. So give me your sense though. How, how did Joe Biden handle this? Um, I th- obviously they you know there there was not enough planning. There was you know the the country. Although the president says now that he always figured it it would be chaotic, that certainly wasn't what he was saying in early July. Um, I mean they are the administration has tried to memory hole a lot of their statements of only weeks ago about how this was going to unfold. Um, the good thing is they have drastically increase the numbers of people they are getting out. But I, I do wonder, I mean, one, but Biden had one little sort of um, signal in his speech the other day where he said he's asking the state department and the mil- and the Pentagon to prepare contingency mm-hmm. plans in case the deadline needs to be extended uh, those may involve some sort of negotiations with the Taliban to, you know, continue some of these evacuations operations afterward. But when you have the Taliban saying they're not letting Afghans out, they're not even letting Afghans get to the airport, 
um, it's just it's really hard to see how how this administration is going to live up to any of the assurances that they've been giving us. Well, also, and I'm going to violate my 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 warning not to speculate about all of this. Um, we don't know who's responsible for the suicide bombing, but it raises questions about the Taliban's ability to control the situation. And so we've been negotiating with them and working out agreements, but can they in fact deliver? Do they in fact have the ability to stand up against, I don't know, you know, ISIS or ISIS-K? Uh, we don't know any of those things. So, what's puzzling to me about all of this is you know, I, I'm listening to Ben Sass, and, and yes, I, I obviously agree that we need to stay until we get all the Americans out and to get all of our allies out. But on a practical level, that no longer seems to be possible, um, given the fact that we don't have any more of a footprint unless we are prepared to engage in military action. And there's nothing that I'm seeing from Joe Biden that suggests to me that he wants to uh, put more troops into in, in, into that theater or that he's prepared to do that. So that's, that's, it's, it's kind of the, we, you know, we, we can talk about what we should do, but our options have been, our options have been dwindling since Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo essentially surrendered to the Taliban more than a year ago, haven't they? Uh, yes, but, but the fact that, you know, but that Joe Biden didn't, sort of, I mean, there were a lot of Trump's policies that, that he rejected, that he right. overturned. So it, it does ring a little hollow when they claim that somehow Donald Trump had made this deal that they had to, to live with. Um, it does seem that if they had wanted, I mean, they will say, you know, that they would have, that, that, Trump wanted them out last spring, that Biden has set a new deadline. But then when, then August 31st became the Taliban's deadline. Uh, the fact is, Joe Biden has been determined. His goals here have been very much the same as Donald Trump's, which is to end the U.S. military commitment in Afghanistan, not taper it off, not leave it there with a light footprint, but, but to bring it to an end. So I want you to put your historian's hat on now, okay? We're, we'll move move from punditry to 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 history because you know, and you've written about the Reagan years very very extensively. I'm trying to think back on other presidents who have presided over uh, disasters, catastrophes, debacles, whatever you want to say. Uh, you know, and sometimes they survive, and sometimes they don't. Um, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm just making some, some quick, you know, back of the envelope sketch things here. Uh, JFK, uh, Bay of Pigs Bay of fiasco. Pig. He, he was, he was fine. LBJ after the Tet Offensive. Um, no, it probably ended his presidency. Um, we keep talking a lot about the, the fall of Saigon that took place uh, under, under Gerald Ford. Am I right about that? I'm right. pretty sure I am. Um, and you know, Gerald Ford lost for re-election, but I'm not sure that's what cost him the election, that sort of thing. Uh, we talk a lot about Jimmy Carter. Uh, Jimmy Carter's presidency um, obviously shaped uh, and badly, badly damaged, not just by the Iran hostage uh, case, but by the, uh, the the fiasco in the in the in the desert where the the helicopters collided. So. There, there are, you know, and but then again, Reagan had his massive scandals involving Iran Contra that didn't really have much effect on his legacy at, at all. So give me just your sense of like how badly 
I mean, what does it take for a president to recover? Are there certain kinds of, is there some, is there some, you know, template we can look at and say, okay, a president can survive this kind of a blunder, but not this kind? Well, I was thinking back on that because it really was while everyone else was comparing this to the fall of Saigon, it was interesting to hear Leon Panetta, former defense secretary and head of the CIA for democratic presidents, go immediately to comparing it to the Bay of Pigs. And, and so yeah. I was thinking back and in the case of both the Bay of Pigs fiasco for JFK and also the Iran-Contra affair for Ronald Reagan, both of those presidents uh, got on national television and acknowledged to the country that they had made mistakes. And that is something that hmm. Joe Biden hmm. has not done. Now, I am i don't know if this is going to hurt him in the end. Um, I think that Americans overall are not that engaged on foreign policy. While um, the polls are showing they disapprove of how he has handled it, most Americans believe his overall goal, which is bringing the commitment in Afghanistan to an end, was the right one. I think ultimately uh, next year's midterms are likely to hinge much more on how people feel about COVID and, and whether they're getting their lives back and what kind of shape the economy is in, uh, then again, barring something truly awful. And I'm not saying that what is going on now is truly awful, but, you know, barring God forbid some kind of terrorist incident or something, I do think there is a real possibility and that the Biden White House is banking on the possibility that, you know, Americans will show their usual, uh, you know, focus on themselves. And that maybe yeah. maybe in a few months, this this won't be sort of pulling down his poll numbers or the Democratic poll numbers the way it looks like they might be doing now. No, it's it, it is it is interesting. I mean, of course, you know how fast things have moved. Looking back, I was thinking of of, of another um, you know d disaster that I think damaged a presidency. Um, I don't think that George Bush, George W. Bush, uh, survived uh, Katrina. Um, I mean, his president. I mean, he obviously had been already been reelected, uh, but but that was one of those. And and I think it became you know it 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 certainly undermined uh, his his popularity, his image for for competence. So there was another example of of a president uh, really done in by this sort of thing. No, you're right. The you know this is a war that people you know have, had grown bored with. Uh, it was off our radar screen. We didn't talk about it that much. I do think how it ends matters a lot. Um, that if we do get out a large, large number of, of people, I think there will be you know, stronger cases that, that we handle it well. However, if, if there are hostage situations, if there are a significant loss of life, I think that that changes, uh, that changes everything. Now, you made reference to the next big political fight that we're going to have domestically. And, th and this, I think, is going to continue into the, uh, in, into the, the midterms. It's very clear that people like uh, Donald Trump and Kevin McCarthy and the folks at Fox News really want to make an issue of the refugees. And uh, they're coming up with the, what I think is really the equivalent of the big lie involving unvetted refugees flooding the country. And this, of course, plays perfectly into their playbook 
of stoking fears about immigrants and about foreigners. So let's talk about this because there's clearly a split among Republicans on this issue as well about whether or not we should welcome those refugees in. How does that play, do you think? Um, I, I think it, it's probably going to play pretty well for them on, on Fox News. Um, you know, do you want – they will essentially scare the heck out of people that, you know, mm-hmm. terrorists are moving in next door to them. But that does not lessen our moral obligation to to these people. And, um, you know, I, I also think our obligation to be a leader in the world, as as Joe Biden, by the way, has promised we will be in in resettling these people and, you know, helping them start on their new lives. And by the way, if you if you particularly look at the waves of immigrants who have come to this country under this kind of duress, and you know, I'm thinking of the South Vietnamese, you know, at one point the Hungarians, they have been just extraordinarily successful and productive and have contributed so much to our country. They they have come, they have, they have started thriving communities. Um, in many ways, uh, if, if we could get past the nativism, I mean, these are precisely the kinds of immigrants that, that have, have really helped achieve this country's success. Okay, so you made two important points. And number one, and I, I couldn't agree more, is that we have to evaluate this not based on whether it polls well or does not poll well. I mean, this is a moral obligation. And sometimes we need to do the right thing, even if it is not politically advantageous. And I think that's something that sometimes in the horse race punditry that we engage in that we forget. That's number one. Number two, having just said that, I also am not sure that this plays as well for the the Kevin McCarthy's of of the world as they as they think. They're going back to the playbook of thinking, okay, you know, this is the wall. We blame the pandemic on immigrants. Uh, we, you know, they're not sending their best, et cetera. This 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 gives us a chance to you know play the caravan card all over again. But for the reasons that you just mentioned, people are focusing on this human tragedy. And one of the things that makes this difference is I think the fact that these are our allies and I am I am heartened by the polls showing 81% of Americans thinking that we ought to welcome the Afghan translators into this country. I think one of the big challenges will be dealing with the misinformation that these folks are not vetted because of course they are the most vetted people on the planet. You know, one layer after another, after another, after another. But I, I, I do think that, and again, this is this is what's going to be interesting about this. It's It's sort of like the you know where 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 will the better angels of where will the better angels of our nature uh, end up here on this particular issue because these are people that I think have a great moral claim uh, on American um, uh, on American acceptance and and I, and I and I and I wonder whether or not that that whole you know xenophobic nativist argument will kind of fall flat when it comes to the Afghans. But I, I'm like, I understand them. I, 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 trust me, I understand the potency of the issue, but it feels kind of paint by numbers, very, very knee jerk, um, very raw. And I, I just, I, 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 I'm, I'm not sure how it plays on this. Well, one thing though, that you have seen all over the country is, uh, 
you know, signs that Americans themselves are really opening their hearts. Um, it just yeah. everywhere you're, you're hearing of, you know, people coming forward saying, how can I help, you know, to the, where can I send money? Where can I send food and clothing? And in some cases, you know, volunteering places for people to live. So I, I do think that, 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 you know, this is a country with a big heart and um, hopefully, hopefully those are the impulses that are going to matter. But I do think there, there may be that, a tendency to, in the short term, at least, kind of demonize some of these people. Well, they're going to demon that. That's already happening. I mean, you look at you know, what Laura Ingram, uh, what uh, Tucker Carlson are doing. But, you know, there there is sort of the, the, the knee-jerk, let's go back to the playbook approach, just assuming that people will react to the Afghan refugees the same way they react to you know, people from Central American caravans or whatever. And I'm just not sure. I, I don't know. I mean, this this is going to be one of those moments where we kind of find out what we're made of, right? I mean, this is a, this is another one of those clarifying debates that America is going to have. And, and America's had these debates about immigrants and about refugees before. This is not the first time. It's not it's not new. Uh, it's just at a, at a different at a different level. And it'll be clarifying. Yeah, it's like, it, what are our values? It's, right. it's, it's really hard sometimes these days to, to figure that out anymore. No, and, 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 and um, I would like to say that the, the core of the Republican Party will do the right thing. But I think we've seen again and again, you know, when they're pushed by the nativists, um, where, the, where they end up. Okay, so in, in the time we have left, and this, this, it, it feels like this happened like a million years ago, but let's talk about domestic politics for a moment. Um, I'm intrigued by the split in the Democrats, uh, between, in the Democratic Party between the moderates uh, and the progressives on the issue of the, the uh, uh, I was going to say the stimulus package. We're not, we're not the infrastructure package. We're, we're talking about the bipartisan infrastructure package and then the $3.5 trillion uh, super infrastructure package that's out there. Uh, you, you had a lot of, you had a lot of, um, um, I don't know, a, a lot of pain earlier this week, and it was this week, when it looked like nine moderates might actually blow up um, the, you know, blow up the process. Progressives now are making similar threats. So give me your sense about w whether or not Nancy Pelosi is going to be able to hold this together or whether these these divisions are going to be a real problem going forward. Well, if if there is an eye to this, this needle, um no, Nancy Pelosi will find it, but she is in a situation where she can't afford to lose more than three votes. Um, and three, three votes. Jeez. Yeah. And so um, she's, you know, what she did, she, she got a deal that sort of, uh, you know, where the, the moderates are going to get a vote in late September on this so-called hard infrastructure package as they are demanding. Essentially, what that does is punt the hard the hard parts, and so. But she has given herself a little more time here to, um, you know, to to figure out where the opening is to to get this passed, uh, and the she's got a lot to do in a very short time, and I think that. If there is an answer, it is going to be in the negotiations over 
the size and the content of this so-called, you know, $3.5 trillion human infrastructure package. Maybe the size gets scaled back a bit. Maybe, you know, the it gets more targeted at, at, you know, helping people who really need help as opposed to some of the benefits that go to higher income people. I mean, I don't know where the answer is, but I do think that if there is if there is one, she's going to find it. I think you're right about this. And and I think, look, clearly it's not going to be $3.5 trillion. Uh, it's going to be smaller. You know, um, the the Democrats in the Senate have made it clear that it's going to be smaller. You know, Joe Manchin uh, has said he's not going to vote for it. Uh, Kristen Sinema says she's not going to vote for it. So it's going to be small. I don't know how much smaller. Will it be 2.5? Will it be 2 trillion? Will that be a problem? Uh, one of the things that seemed to focus the minds of Democrats this week was this would be this week, especially with the problems going on in Afghanistan and the uh, poll uh, shakiness for the Biden administration was this was a bad week uh, to sail uh, Congress into the iceberg <laughs> that they didn't want to. They didn't want to pile on by uh, killing the agenda. And I'm guessing that that motive will still be there. But um, you know, yes, I, I, I think that Nancy Pelosi does thread thread the needle. And if you do pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill, that's a win. And I think that, that that's, that's got to be very persuasive for them. They, they have it in their hand. When you have a win, you take the win. You know, you give the president the chance to sign and then you negotiate the terms of the other deal, which is going to be massive no matter how much they cut it. I mean, this is part of the thing is like, you know, a trillion here, a trillion there, Karen, it's, it, it, you know, sooner or later, it, it starts to add up to real money, Right. Exactly. And, you know, there are also some um, kind of outlier issues here. Some, you know, some of these so-called moderates uh, may be bought off if you bring back the state and local tax deductions or or something like that. I mean, there's all, always, you know, something you can use to, uh, to right. bring people along. And, and Nancy Pelosi is is very good at that as well. I mean, I, I was in the House chamber the day she managed to get the Affordable Care Act over the finish line. And I I don't think there has been in modern history a, a, you know, an exercise of more impressive legislating than watching her do what it took to get exactly practically as many votes as she needed for that one. Well, and also she was willing um, to risk the majority. I mean, she's already proven that she's willing to take a vote for something big, knowing that you might pay a price in the midterms. So uh, clearly she's not bluffing about that this time around. Um, I do wonder whether or not... um, the, the 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 Democrats still seem to think that uh, that they can go into the midterms, you know, with this record of you know putting money in people's pockets. I, I just wonder whether that's the nature of politics anymore. I mean, I, I you know what I'm saying? I, I I I this it this feels like it's sort of out there, but not on the average voter's radar screen. Or am I somewhat jaundiced there in my perspective? Well, I think in their calculation, the uh, putting money in people's pockets is necessary, but not sufficient. Um, I, I also think that they that, you know, Biden is going to have to have convinced people that he handled COVID as well as it could possibly be handled. 
the economy is going to have to feel like it's, if not in decent shape, at least on the upswing. And there are just external events, too, that can shape these, these midterms. One thing that the, um, that the Democrats will keep pointing out over and over it was, is that since the Civil War, there have only been two midterm elections in a first term where the president's party actually picked up seats, those mm-hmm. being 1932 and, I mean, 1934 and uh, 2002, both of them at times of national crisis, FDR handling the Great Depression, George W. Bush handling the aftermath of 9-11, where people were willing to give the president's party an another chance because they had approved of how he had handled the biggest crisis going on in their lives at the time. So uh, I think that that is, you know, that is one of the things the Democrats are hoping will happen this time. But that also suggests that really Biden has got to has got to come out of this COVID thing um, with high marks. Yeah, we all need to come out of this COVID thing with high marks because I'm I'm just sensing a level of anger about this that I didn't sense say a year ago. But 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 most of the anger, I'll be honest with you, is directed at the unvaccinated, at the at the, at the reckless demagoguery of folks. Um, I mean, I'm hearing uh, even from some pretty solidly you know conservative folks that they are at least privately really ticked off at the uh, you know at the adamant anti vaxxers out there and. Again, if, uh, if, if, if uh, school is disrupted um, because people refuse to get vaccine, I'm, I'm just not sure who gets blamed for this at this point. I mean, I agree with you that if you're the president, you want, you want to fix the problem, you want the economy to come back. Um, but this is also this very unusual situation. If, if, in fact, we don't come out of this, are people going to blame Biden or are they going to blame people like Ron DeSantis? I don't know the answer to that. Well, the one thing you no longer hear that you heard you know, early on in this thing was that COVID isn't real, you know, that, 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 you know, people don't say this is just the flu or, you know, it's, it's overhyped. I mean, what people are seeing across the country is, is not only, you know, a death toll that exceeds 600,000, but, but intensive care units in hospitals are just jammed to capacity with COVID patients, uh, primarily unvaccinated COVID patients. And, um, you know, what does that say if you're having a cancer crisis or a heart attack or something else that that could land you in the hospital? Um, people, People now at least acknowledge that COVID is real. Well, some people do. I, I think the vast majority of Americans do. Although I was talking with somebody yesterday whose mother was in a hospital and she was in, in very, very tough shape. And he was really concerned that perhaps the nurses would not be able to get to her if she had a medical crisis because they are so overwhelmed with COVID. And, you know, ha- she she did not pass away. But but had she passed away, um, you know, this would have this would have really been just an, another one of the data points on how the the coronavirus is taking more lives than just the direct loss of life from the coronavirus, if 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 you follow me. So I'm I'm just sensing a really growing sense of disgust and frustration with um, should we say those those folks with the selfishness, with the narcissism, um, and I think this is another one of those cases where 
Republicans like Greg Abbott and uh, and, and and Ron DeSantis may be misreading the the public mood. They may be stuck with their base tribal politics. But I I just I I I, I think the people are seeing exactly what you uh, what you're describing there. Karen Tumulty, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for listening to the Bulwark podcast. You can hear in the background, see, that's the old guy. That's Pete outside the door saying, why are you guys not playing with me? Because he knows the puppy is in here with me. And so uh, the good news is that even though Pete, who's like 16 years old, which is like 100 years in what people term, but um, even though he's outside barking, um, the 130-pound large puppy who's lying at my feet entangled in all of the wires has not yet moved. So we managed to get through this podcast And we'll do it all over again tomorrow.